All right, if you have your Bibles, would you open God's Word with me to the book of Revelation chapter 20. We are quickly coming to the end of this book. As I told you, we kind of put everything on a fast track trying to get to the end of the book by the end of the year. And I believe, Lord willing, we will accomplish that. Tonight we'll be looking at Revelation chapter 20. If you don't have an outline, feel free to get up. There's still some up here to my left. Feel free to get up and get you one. And uh, there may be some in the back, I'm not sure. But uh, I want to talk tonight essentially about the doom of Satan and the thousand-year reign of Christ. Those two topics are covered in Revelation 20. You know, the book of Revelation is not only a book of prophecy, and by that I mean a book that unfolds the future for us. It not only unfolds the future, but it also is a book of endings. What I mean by that is, Revelation 20 describes the end of some things. Of course, the end of the world, but it also describes the end of Satan. Now that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? The end of Satan. Now when I use the word end, I'm not saying that he will cease to exist. But what I, when I use the word end, I, I do mean that he's, his demonic influence and activity will one day cease. His abilities, his work in this world will one day cease. He is not eternal in the sense of God who is eternally uh, at work in our world. Now, he will be eternal in the sense that he will always exist, but, but his demonic influence will cease. It will end. So Revelation 20 shows us what happens to the devil and it reminds us that though he is active now, and he is very active now, isn't he? But though he is very active now, he is ultimately doomed. Now that's one of the things we'll be looking at tonight. The other part of this chapter, it tells us about the thousand year reign of Christ where Jesus will rule over the earth, perhaps from the city of Jerusalem. And the only reason I say perhaps is because there are some who say that The thousand-year reign of Christ is not a literal reign, and we'll get into all of that in a moment. But I believe uh, that, indeed, Jesus Christ will come and reign from the city of Jerusalem uh, for a thousand years. Let me just kind of give you the picture in a nutshell before we dig in. Basically, three components. There's no place really to put this on your notes, but just to kind of give you a picture of what we're going to be talking about. Here's how it will happen in a nutshell. Satan will be removed from the world scene. We'll read about that in verse 1 in just a moment. He'll be removed from the world scene for a while. Christ will establish his kingdom on earth. Remember when Jesus prayed, and he said, this is kind of the way you pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, that prayer will finally be answered. There will be a thousand years where God's will will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. And for that thousand years, there will be total and absolute peace in the world because Satan will, be, will have been removed from the world. There will be absolute peace in the world, no temptation, and that's just going to be an incredible time. But the question is, is that really going to be a literal thousand-year reign? That's one of the most theologically disputed things in the entire Bible, the thousand-year reign or the millennial reign of Christ. Uh, so really the issue is, is this something that will happen spiritually or is this something that will happen literally? And of course, Bible teachers and scholars have debated that for centuries. It's kind of like a puzzle. Have you ever seen, uh, it's been a while since I've seen this, but have you ever seen 
jigsaw puzzles that have two different pictures that have a picture on both sides? Boy, you talk about hard puzzle to put together. Now, we love to do jigsaw puzzles at our house, and, you know, there's different sizes, 100, 500,000 pieces or whatever. And, uh, and I, I've told you before that Lisa is just fanatical about, is she in here or did she go to the youth service? I think she went to the youth service. All right, all right, I can, I can tell you. Uh, Lisa is just fanatical about uh, not looking at the picture on the box, which I think is stupid. It's like, they give you that picture for a reason, you know, so you know what you're putting together. But she says it's cheating to look at the picture on the box, which makes no sense to me whatsoever. But I've learned, let Lisa have her way when it comes to the jigsaw puzzle. Didn't mean to throw in that marriage lesson there, but that might help somebody. But the most difficult jigsaw puzzle are the ones that have two different pictures, that have a picture on each side. Because what's the very first thing you do when you get a jigsaw puzzle out? You start laying out the, the pieces and flipping it over, right? Well, what do, what do you do when there's two different pictures? Especially if you're working with, with Lisa and you can't even look at the box to find out what, what the pictures are. When we look at Revelation chapter 20, put it back in the box. <laughs> yeah. When you look at the first 10 verses of Revelation 20, it's something like a, a puzzle with, with pictures on both sides. There's different solutions depending on which way the pieces are turned over at the beginning of the chapter. There's different solutions if, if you believe this is a thousand-year reign literally or if it's a spiritual thousand-year reign. Uh, Johnny Hunt, who is a man that I greatly respect, pastor I greatly respect, he said this in summary. He said, this is one of those subjects that a lot of questions are going to have to go unanswered until that period becomes a reality. In other words, translation, until we get there, it's all a guess. But I think we can have an educated guess. So quickly, I'll put on your notes there. Uh, first of all, I'll just approach it from the standpoint, as I've already said, I believe it is a literal thousand-year reign. But let me give you the views of the millennium or the, uh, this thousand-year reign. And I'm going to read the first six verses. As I read the first six verses, I want you to follow along. And I want you to count the number of times you see the phrase, a thousand years. All right? Be looking for that as I read, the, a thousand years. Chapter 20 of Revelation, verse 1. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil, or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss, and locked and sealed it over him, to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free. For a short time, I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the Word of God. By the way, when I read that now, you know, years ago when I read about this text, about the beheadings, it was something kind of distant, but when I read about it now, I instantly think of ISIS and how quickly and easily, and when I say easily, just how flippantly uh, those men will, will behead a Christian. 
And, and now it makes sense, doesn't it? Now it really comes to life. Verse 4 again, I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have been part of the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, for they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. How many times did you see that phrase, a thousand years, in, in those verses? Five. I counted six. Maybe I've double counted. Somebody Count them again, make sure. If I'm wrong, I'd like to know. I'm wrong. <laughs> Peggy, I have the feeling you didn't even count that. You just... <laughs> you marked it off. All right. Huh? If I go to verse 7, that, that's, that's what it was. I went to verse 7. Peggy, I went to verse 7. But I told you verse 6, so we're kind of both right. (laughs) I'm glad to know you agree with me on something. (laughs) We like to pick at each other. Uh, All right, so this period in history is known as the millennium. It It is from two Latin words. Mille means a thousand Anum, and I may not be saying that quite right, means a year. It refers to the thousand-year reign of Christ. Uh, and so there's three major views about what this is. And I put those big words on your, on your sheet there. And let me give you just a brief summary. A lot of you already know this. But so for some of you, this is new information. So I want to at least give you an introductory kind of an, uh, comments uh, about this thousand-year reign. First, as, as some have interpreted this, they see it from the premillennialist perspective, and that premillennialism means simply that Christ, they, this doctrine teaches that Christ will reign, I'm sorry, that Christ will return to the earth before the thousand year reign begins. Premillennial, that Christ will come back before the thousand year reign begins. He will establish his kingdom, he will set up his throne in a rebuilt city of Jerusalem, that he literally will come back to this earth. And you say, well, what is there to support that kind of belief? Uh, there are many Old Testament references we won't go into tonight uh, where, where it refers to God establishing his kingdom on earth. Uh, there are many references prophesying that one would come who would occupy the throne of David. And many see that as a, as a reference that would lend to this uh, belief. You go to the New Testament again, Jesus prayed, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, and God's will could not be done on earth as it is in heaven unless, unless Satan is bound and there is no sin and there is no temptation. So this view says the world is... Now hear this, this is important. This view says that the world is getting worse rather than better. And the only thing that will make it better is the return of Jesus Christ. Now, the reason I tell you that is because of the next one is post-millennialist. 
And post-millennialists believe that the world is getting better and better and that by preaching the gospel, it will, there will be a transformation of society and we will bring in to this earth a thousand-year period of perfect peace. When those thousand years are, are up, Christ will return to take believers to heaven and condemn non-believers. This viewpoint was very popular in the 19th century and the early 20th century. You know, back then, the, the world was pretty much at peace, and it could be said that the world was getting better and better. And then came along something called World War I, and then the Great Depression, and the rise of Hitler, and World War II, and the Soviet Union, and all of that kind of thing. And the optimism of the world getting better suddenly dissipated. The idea that the world is getting better and better and better suddenly was out the window. It faded away. But believe it or not, I don't, I'm not exactly sure why. I'm not sure that I can explain this to you. But believe it or not, there, there is starting to be a resurgence of the idea in some Christian circles that maybe, the, maybe there is something to this idea of postmillennialism. The idea that God will work through His people until the kingdoms of the world are steadily transformed by the kingdom of Christ. That, that if we'll share the gospel enough, this world is going to get better and it will usher in this reign. I just got to say, when I watch the evening news, I don't see the world getting better. Not even close. So that's post-millennialism. I'm millennialist. Amillennialism literally means no millennium. This viewpoint says that there's not a literal thousand-year reign, uh, that the references to a thousand years are simply spiritual, symbolic, rather than literal. The amillennialist, put this down somewhere, the amillennialist believes that the church is the fulfillment of the kingdom and that Christ reigns through the believers, that they're saying, listen... The church is that thousand-year reign. It's the church is here for a thousand years. The, the thousand years is a symbol of, of Christ's victory and the church's wonderful blessings. And uh, Now, they say it all started with Jesus' death on the cross, that he defeated the enemy then, he defeated Satan then, and now there's this thousand years of the church reigning and ruling. Dr. James M. Gray years, years ago, said, if Satan is bound today, it must be by a terribly long chain. Uh, I agree with him. He said, well, Pastor, which one are you? How, where do you fall in that camp? Uh, I, I am uh, a pre-millennialist, and I'm not going to get into this uh, very deeply, but beyond pre-millennialist, if you try to pin me down, I'm not sure exactly where I fall. Depends on what day of the week it is. Uh, there is historical premillennialist. There is dispensational premillennialist. That's even hard to say, much less understand. And so I'll just introduce that to you. Uh, I, I have shared this before. It's not original, but I had a, a seminary friend named Jimmy Myers who used to say when we were studying all this stuff in seminary, he, he, I'd never heard this before, and he looked at me so sincerely. He said, you know what? He said, I'm a pan-millennialist. And I'm this young seminary student. I'm thinking, I, didn't, I missed that. What book was that in? And I said, what do you mean you're a pan-millennialist? He said, it's all going to pan out in the end. So sometimes that might be the best answer. Exactly, exactly. It's, it's, not, 
it's not anything that we ought to get too upset over. Uh, and, and thus, I think the comment of panmillennialists, it, it shouldn't be something that divides us. Now, look at the next thing on your note. I don't want, this is very interesting. Satan, the Bible says, will be confined during this thousand years. And I want you to look in the text. I, I want you to answer the question rather than me answer it for you. Who comes down out of heaven to bind Satan during this time? Thank you, Peggy. Not just an angel, but an unnamed angel. Now, aren't there some named angels in the Bible? You know, in my mind, it's like, okay, whoever's taking down Satan, you know, that's probably going to be a pretty big angel. We're not going to assign that to the rookie angel. All right? Whoever's taking down Satan, that's got to be one of those, you know, that's got to be like Michael or one of those guys. But it's interesting that the text specifically says, look, look at it again. Look what it says. And I saw an angel. Specifically, it, it, I mean, maybe deliberately is the better word. It doesn't give a name. I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. I, that's so interesting to me. Not God the Father, not Jesus, not the Holy Spirit, just an anonymous angel. Again, an indication, by the way, that God is so much more powerful than the devil. Now, he had two things in his hand. What, what are they? Key to the abyss and a what? And a great chain. Now, what, what does verse 2 say that the angel did? What does that word indicate to you? It says in verse 2, he, he this angel, this unnamed angel... <laughs> I'm sorry, I just got this mental picture of God's telling angel, an angel saying, you want me to do what? <laughs> he, this angel, this unnamed angel, seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who was the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. What does the word seized indicate to you, suggest to you? Grabbed him by the nap of the neck, all right? force overpowered if you have a police officer that seizes somebody it's not a pleasant experience right it's not something where it where when you seize somebody you somebody you overpower them this angel this unnamed angel overpowers satan and look at the titles that he's given. How many titles is listed there as the titles for Satan? Yeah. Ask Peggy. She'll tell us. <laughs> How many, Peggy? Thank you. Thank you. He sees the dragon and then not just the serpent. What's, what's he called? Ancient serpent. Why, why do you think he's called the ancient serpent? Back to the beginning. Back to the Garden of Eden. When the serpent came slithering through the Garden of Eden. 
he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil, or Satan, and bound him a thousand years with that chain. And then, look what he did in verse 3. He, this, this anonymous angel, threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him. And we'll read some more in a minute, but let's do a little study of this word abyss because it's, it's fascinating, really, to understand it. By the way, does anybody have the King James Version? Anybody? All right, what's the word for abyss there? Is it, is it a different word? Bottomless pit. Very picturesque, bottomless pit. What is this abyss? This abyss? What is this bottomless pit? Put this on your notes. There's not a fill in the blank, but, but you, there in the side column, you might want to write this down. The abyss is a temporary place of torment and holding. A temporary place of torment and holding. This is not hell. Make sure you understand that. It's not hell. Not as we know it. But it is a place of incarceration for, de- for demons and the devil. It's, we've read about it already th- throughout the book of Revelation. Let's just read real quickly. I won't make comment. Uh, go to Revelation chapter 9. Revelation chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. <clears throat> The fifth angel sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given the key to the, to the shaft of the abyss. Look at verse 2. When he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss. Look at verse 11. They had a... They had as king over them the angel of the abyss, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek, Apollyon. Look in chapter 11, verse 7. Now when they had finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. And finally, chapter 17, verse 8. The beast which you saw once was, now is not, and will come up out of the abyss and go to his destruction. So the abyss is this temporary place of torment and holding for the demons and the devil. But this is not the first time we ever hear about the abyss. I don't know if you remember this or not, but go to Luke chapter 8. We encounter the abyss even in the Gospels, uh, the book of Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, verse 31. Uh, beginning in verse 26 is the story of the healing of the demon-possessed man who was, had a legion of demons inside him. Verse 30, Jesus asked him, what is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him and they begged him repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. Interesting. 
So Satan and his demons, when we go back to Revelation uh, chapter 20, Satan uh, is, is incarcerated, if you will, in the abyss. Here's what you need to understand. Satan and his demons are not yet in hell. But one day, they will be. All right? Let me show you what I'm talking about. Uh, go back to chapter 20. Let's read verse 7 and 8 and verse 10. Chapter 20, verse 7 and 8. When the thousand years are over, that thousand year period, Satan, the angel comes, the anonymous angel locks up Satan in the abyss. And when the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand of the seashore. He's going to be released for a time, but look at verse 10. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So there is where Satan will eventually go. That is the final place. What the Bible calls here the lake of burning sulfur. What does it say in the King James or another translation? Lake of fire. Okay. All right. By the way, those who die without knowing Christ, they are not in hell yet either. The Bible says that they are in Hades. Hades is a temporary place of punishment and imprisonment. Uh, but one day they will be released from Hades, face judgment before God. We're going to read about that in a moment face judgment before God, and then they will experience the eternal punishment of hell. In fact, let's just read about it now. Chapter 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who, had, who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of what, church? The book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. Uh, the sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and what? Hades. There's that word. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. There's that reference again. The same place Satan will be thrown. Will be thrown into the lake of fire. And the lake of fire is the second death. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. I'm trying to decide what I need to skip because I'm afraid I'm going to run out of time. But I think I put this on your notes. Did I put the doom of Satan will finally be realized? Verses 9 and 10. And, and that leads into this great white throne judgment. So let me deal with verses 9 and 10 and then get into the great white throne judgment. Satan will eventually be cast forever into the lake of fire. And by the way, he will not be ruler there. He will not be ruler over hell. No king is tormented day and night when he is the ruler. But it says in that text, he will be tormented day and night. So when he gets to 
to what we would call hell, he's not going to be in charge there. Now that's, but that's the way we, we've got it in all the movies, right? That's the way we got it in the comics and all of that, that he's in hell, he's in charge, he's got the pitchfork, but once he is finally cast into hell, he will be torment, tormented day and night, just like everyone else there. The king is not tormented day and night. Does that make sense? When you're the ruler, you're not tormented. Uh, but also understand that what you probably already know, but let me mention it, hell is going to be eternal annihilation. The beast and the false prophet, by the time we get to this part of the text, they're already there for a thousand years, still in torment. And then Satan is cast there as well, or will be. Uh, but they do not cease to exist. I want you to see something in Matthew 25. Matthew 25, verse 41. Matthew 25, verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed into... What kind of fire is that? Eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Have you ever noticed that? Do you know that hell is not prepared for you? Do you know that God doesn't intend for you to go there? God doesn't want you to go there. But the day does come for every person. The choice is very simple. Enjoy God for all of eternity or experience the torment of hell for all eternity. Which brings us to this day of judgment beginning in verse 11. We've read through it quickly, but let me read it again. Verse 11 through 15. The, the, the Bible speaks of basically a, a supreme court of the universe. Has anybody ever been to the Supreme Court building in Washington, D.C.? Anybody ever been there? I have. It's fascinating to me. I I remember kind of being in awe as I stood there in that room thinking about all the history that had been made in that room. And I wondered what it would be like to stand, how terrifying it would be to stand before the nine judges, right? standing before the nine Supreme Court judges. If I were a lawyer and I had to stand to make a case, it would just, just be terrifying, I think, to stand there and try to make this legal case and have your case heard and all that kind of thing and plead your case before the Supreme Court. That pales in comparison to the Supreme Court of the universe. The Supreme Court of the universe is not anywhere on the globe it's going to be in heaven in the presence of God. And let's read about what's going to happen. It's called the Great White Throne. And if that sounds familiar, I recently talked about it briefly in a message on a Sunday morning as I talked about the two different judgments. So now we're going to talk about in detail what this Great White Throne is all about. Here's what we read, beginning in verse 11, chapter 20. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, Earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. This is interesting. Books were opened. Another 
Does it say book or books there? Another book. In contrast to the other books, another book was opened, which is the book of life. Interesting. He says in verse 12, I saw the dead standing here. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And then notice the next sentence. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the, read that carefully, as recorded in the book or books. So it's not referring to the book of life, is it? It's referring to that other set of books. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. Again, we're talking about dead, not life. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, and the lake of fire is the second death. You see, there's two deaths. The first one is when you die physically. The second one is when you don't know Christ, and you're cast into the lake of fire forever. It's the second death. If anyone's name, verse 15, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The great white throne judgment will not be like any courtroom experience we've ever witnessed because there will be a judge, but there will be no jury. There will be a prosecutor, but there will be no defender. There will be a sentence, but there will be no appeal. This is the final judgment of the world, and this will be the moment when we meet our maker. Let me rephrase that. When those who don't know Christ will meet their maker, and they will wish they could turn back the clock and rewrite their story. Um, notice, let me just go through this real quickly. Uh, the setting, this is on your notes, the setting of the great white throne. Verse 1, it, it's referred to a great throne. It speaks of the power of the one sitting there. Referred to as a white throne, referring to the purity of the one sitting on the throne. His verdict is holy and righteous. People will get exactly what they deserve. Because of the purity of the one sitting there. Uh, John does not give us the name of the one who sits on the throne. He simply says him who is seated on it. But the judge, the one who, was, who will be seated there is Jesus. I don't have time to read the references. Let me give, it, give them to you. You can write them down. John 5.22. John 5.22 and verse 28 and 29. Also Acts 17 verse 30 through 31. Now, let me describe to you what's going to happen here. Let me say again that this judgment is not a judgment for the Christian. This is, if you know Christ as your Savior, you will not stand before the great white throne. But the, this judgment is the judgment of those who have rejected Christ, who have failed to receive Christ, who have put off that decision, who, those who are, who are lost. All of mankind will one day, those who are lost, stand before the great white throne. Here's what you need to understand. Every person, would you say every person? 
Every person. Every person is going to be accountable to God. Every person. Every person will be accountable to God. Every person will one day stand before God. Those who do not know Christ as Savior will stand before God at the great white throne. The people who ignored Christ, those who denied Christ, those who rejected Christ, those who cursed Christ, those who disobeyed Christ, those who put off Christ, every person who does not know Christ will stand before God to give an account of their life. And Notice secondly the summons of the great white throne. Verse 12, who is summoned to this judgment? They are referred to as the dead. Remember how it's described, I think it's in the book of John, it talks about those who, who are saved and it says they've crossed over from death to life. That's a good description for every Christian. You've crossed over from death to life. But if you've never crossed over from death to life, spiritually you're dead right now. So this is who's referred to at the great white throne. Small and great, it says. The big shots and the nobodies. Everyone will be there. Sinners who rejected Christ, who ignored Christ in this life, must now be judged by Him and face eternal death. Then the sentence of the great white throne, verse 12 through 15. Let me ask you a question. You find it there in the text, verses 12 and following. Where, where do these dead come from? The sea? That would be those who perhaps have drowned or those who have been buried at sea. Death? would be those who come from the grave. Hades would be a place of torment that houses the spirits of those who have died without Christ. Now, this is, in the next three minutes, we've got to get to the heart of the judgment. The basis of the judgment is what's found in the books, plural. What's found in the books, what they did in this life. Now, the reason for that is not, hear this, it is not to, de to determine if they're going to heaven or hell. They determine that in this lifetime. So when the books are opened and they're examined, how's it described? Let's, let me read it again. Uh, what verse? Verse 12. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. Isn't it interesting? God's keeping track. You say, well, Pastor Keith, why will they be judged according to what's done in the books? Because God is a just God. And He is going to punish people in a just way. Hell will not be the same for everybody. Now, hell will be awful for everybody. But God is going to punish in a just way. You see, what, what, how, what do you base that on? Go to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. See, you, you're probably just thinking, well, you know, I just think when people go to hell, I mean, it, it's all hell. You know, it's all fire. It's all the same. But let's read Matthew chapter 11, verse 20 and following. Then Jesus began to denounce 
the cities in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, uh, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. Not everybody's going to get the same punishment. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the skies? No, you will go down to the depths. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have, been, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. I'm not sure that I can fully understand that, but God is in a just way going to mete out the judgment that we all deserve when we don't know Christ as Savior. You say, okay, one last thing, and this, this is where you're going to have to let your brain go. Why is it that God's going to wait till the end of time to judge people? Anybody want to answer that one for us? Didn't do it all at once to get it over with. Well, yeah, but... No. They don't have a chance. Once they've died, they've got no chance. Exactly. You're just my star student tonight, Peggy. (laughs) Watch this, watch this. Imagine I'm dropping a, a, a pebble into the water and you have those, that ripple effect. I'm going to give you just one horrific example. Imagine a, porno, a pornographer making a pornographic movie. That's him dropping the rock. That movie is the rock that you drop into the water. And then there's the ripple effect. If God judged him at the time of his death, God would not judge him justly. Because the ripple effect of what he made and put on the internet is going to go on long after his death. Does that make sense? And so in order to judge justly, God must wait till the end of time to see how what you did in this life, the repercussions of what you did and how it affected others. Not just now even after you're gone. Pretty scary stuff, isn't it? Why in the world would anybody not say yes to Jesus? Because when you have trusted Christ as Savior, you don't have to fear that judgment because you won't even be there. You will be judged at the judgment seat of Christ. And that judgment, as we said a week or two ago, is not based on whether or not you're going to get into heaven. It's based on what kind of rewards you're going to get. The great white throne judgment is what kind of punishment you're going to get. So lots to look at. Lots to dwell on. But here's what I want you to think about as we end. Is your name, everybody look up here. Is your name in the book of life. That's all that matters tonight. Are you sure your name is in the book of life?
Father, in the name of Jesus, we are in awe at how just and how gracious, how merciful you are, but yet you also are God. And there is a day appointed when we will stand before you and give an account. Thank you for telling us in advance what we're facing. Thank you that in your justice, in your mercy, you let us know ahead of time. And I pray, God, if there's any person here and they don't know if their name is there or maybe they're sure that their name is not there in the book of life, I pray that they won't go to sleep tonight until they ask you to be their Lord and their Savior. And I pray that in Christ's name.